Okay, Mimi, this is your first installment of um, reading the third book of Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lavern's Daughter. Um, the way I'm going to organize this is we, this in this recording, I'm going to finish um, part one because this book is separated into three different parts, part one, part two, and part three. So we are going to finish part one in this recording, and then the next recording, the next four recordings will be half of the other parts. So the next recording will be part two, the first half, and then the recording after that will be part two, the second half, and then the recording after that will be part three, the first half, and then the recording after that will be part four, part three, the second half. So again, um, you are... You are currently in the middle of chapter four of the first part. So I'm going to finish the entire part, which is 118 pages. So sit back, relax, and enjoy um, Kristen's heart in this journey. No, cried Simon, ashamed at the sound of his own voice. He had never surrendered. He was tormented, tormented, tormented by them. Whenever he woke up from these sinful dreams, he felt as if he himself had been violated in his sleep. Two horses were tied to the fence when he entered the courtyard. It was Soton, who belonged to Erlen Nicholson and Kristen's horse, he called for the stable boy. Why hadn't they been let inside? Because the vi visitors had said it wasn't necessary, replied the boy sullenly. He was a young lad who had taken a position with Simon now that he was home. Before, he had served at Differin. There, everything was supposed to be done according to courtly custom. That's what Helga had demanded. But if this fool Sigurd thought he could grumble at his master here at Formo because Simon preferred to jest and banter with his men and didn't mind a bold reply from his servant, then the devil would... Simon was about to scold the boy roundly, but he refrained. He had just come from confession after all. John Dalk would have to take the newcomer in hand and teach him that good peasant customs were just as acceptable as the refined ways at different. He merely asked in a relatively calm voice whether Sigurd was fresh out of the mountains this year and told him to put the horses inside. But he was angry. The first thing he saw as he entered the house was Erlen's laughing face. The light from the candle on the table shone directly on him as he sat on the bench and fended off Ulfhild, who was kneeling beside him and trying to scratch him or whatever she was doing. She was flailing her hands at the man's face and laughing so hard that she hiccuped. Erlen sprang to his feet and tried to push the child aside, but she gripped the sleeve of, the sleeve of his tunic and hung onto his arm as he walked across the room, erect and light-footed, to greet his brother-in-law. She was nagging him for something. Erlen and Simon could barely get a word in. Her, fa her father ordered her ra rather harshly to go out to the cookhouse with the maids. They had just finished setting the table. When the maiden protested, he took her hard by the arm and tore her away from Ireland. Here, 
Olfhild's uncle took a lump of resin out of his mouth and stuck it into hers. Take it, Olfhild, my little plum cheeks. That daughter of yours, he said to his brother-in-law with a laugh as he gazed after the maiden, is not going to be as docile as Arngird. Simon hadn't been able to resist telling his wife how well Arngird had handled the marriage matter, but he hadn't intended for her to tell the people of Jorngard, and it was unlike Ramborg to do so. He knew that she had little affection for Erland. He didn't like it. He didn't like the fact that Ramborg had sp spoken of this matter, or that she was so capricious, or that Olfhild, little girl though she was, seemed so charmed by Erland, just as all women were. He went over to greet Kristen. She was sitting in the corner, next to the hearth wall, with Andres on her lap. The boy had grown caught quite fond of his aunt during the time she nursed him when he was recovering from the illness the previous fall. Simon realized that there must be some purpose for this visit since Erland had come too. He was not one to wear out the doorstep at Formo. Simon couldn't deny that Erland had handled the difficult situation admirably, considering how things had turned out between the brothers-in-law. Erland avoided Simon as much as he could, but they met as often as necessary so that gossip wouldn't spread about enmity between kinsmen, and then they always behaved like the best of friends. Erland was quiet and a bit reticent whenever they were together, but still displayed a free and unfettered manner. When the food had been brought to the table and the ale set out, Erland spoke. I think you're probably wondering about the reason for my visit, Simon. We're here to invite you and Ramborg to a wedding at our manor. Surely you must be jesting. I didn't think you had anyone of marrying age on your estate. That depends on how you look at it, brother-in-law. It's Ulf Halderson. Simon slapped his thigh. Next, I'll expect my plow oxen to produce calves at Christmas time. You shouldn't call Ulf a plow ox, said Erlin with a laugh. The unfortunate thing is that the man has been far too bold. Simon whistled. Erlin laughed again and said, Yes, you can well imagine that I didn't believe my own ears when they came to the estate yesterday the sons of Herbrand of Metalheim, and demanded that Ulf should marry their sister. Herbrand Rimbas? But they're nothing but boys. Their sister can't be old enough that Ulf would. She's twenty winters old, and Ulf is closer to fifty. Yes. Erland had turned somber. You realize, Simon, that they must consider him a poor match for Jartrid, but it's the lesser of two evils if she marries him. Although Ulf was the son of a knight and a well-to-do man, he doesn't need to earn his bread on another man's estate, but he followed us here because he would rather live with his kinsmen than on his own farm at Skåne. after what happened. Erlen fell silent for a moment. His face was tender and handsome. Then he continued, Now we, Kristen and I, intend to celebrate this wedding as if he were our brother. That's why Ulf and I will ride south in the coming week to Musidol to ask for her hand at Metalheim. For the sake of appearances, you understand. But I thought of asking you a favor, brother-in-law. I remember, Simon, that I owe you a great deal. But Ulf is not well-liked here in the villages, and you are so highly respected. Few men are your equal. While I myself, he shrugged his shoulders and laughed a little, would you be willing, Simon, to ride with us and act as spokesman on Ulf's behalf? He and I have been friends since we were boys, pleaded Erland. That I will, brother-in-law. Simon had turned crimson. He felt oddly embarrassed and powerless at Erland's candid speech. I will gladly do anything I can to honor Ulf Halderson. Kristen had been sitting in the corner with Andres. The boy wanted his aunt to help him undress. Now she came forward into the light, holding the half-naked child who had his arms around her neck. That's kind of you, Simon, she said softly, holding out her hand. For this we all thank you. 
Simon lightly clasped her hand for a moment. Not at all, Kristen. I have always been fond of Ulf. You should know that I do this gladly. He reached up to take his son, but Andres pretended to fret, kicking at his father with his little bare feet, laughing and clinging to Kristen. Simon listened to the two of them as he sat and talked to Erland about Ulf's money matters. The boy suddenly started giggling. She knew so many lullabies and nursery rhymes, and she laughed too. A gentle, soft cooing sound from deep in her throat. Once he glanced in their direction and saw that she had made a kind of stairway with her fingers, and Andres's fingers were walking up it. At last, she put him in the cradle and sat down next to Ramborg. The sisters chatted to, to each other in hushed voices. It was true enough, he thought as he lay down that night. He had always been fond of Ulf Halderson. And ever since that winter in Oslo, when they had both struggled to help Kristen, he had felt himself bound to the man w with a kind of kinship. He never thought that Ulf was anything but his equal, the son of a nobleman. The fact that he had no rights from his father's family, because he had been conceived in adultery, meant only that Simon was even more respectful in his dealings with Ulf. Somewhere in the depths of his own heart, there was always a prayer for, for Ungird's well-being. But otherwise, this was not a good situation to get involved with. A middle-aged man and such a young child. Well, if Jartrude Herbenstatter had strayed when she was at the, at the thing last summer, it was none of his concern. He had done nothing to offend these people, and Ulf was the close kinsman of his brother-in-law. Unasked, Ramborg had offered to help Kristen by overseeing the table at the wedding. He thought this kind of her. When it mattered, Ramborg always showed what lineage she was from. Yes, indeed, Ramborg was a good woman. There is a footnote about the thing that was referred to in the last um, paragraph. Um, it says, well, if Jarjord Herzmandatter had strayed when she was at the Ting last summer, and they um, explain the Ting as a meeting of free adult men, women rarely attended, which met at regular intervals to discuss matters of concern to a particular community. On the local level, the Ting might consider such issues as pasture rights, fencing, bridge and road construction, taxes, and the maintenance of the local warship. A regional Ting, attended by chieftains or appointed deputies, would address such issues as defense and legal jurisdiction. The regional Ting also functioned as a court, although its authority diminished as the power of the king grew. In addition to its regular meetings, the Ting could be called for a specific purpose, such as the acclamation of a new king. End footnote. Now we move on to chapter 5. The day after St. Catherine's Day, Erlen Nicholson celebrated the wedding of his kinsman in a most beautiful and splendid fashion. Many good people had gathered. Simon Dar had seen to that. He and his wife were exceedingly well-liked in all the surrounding villages. Both priests from the Olav Church were in attendance, and Sarah Eirik blessed the house and the bed. This was considered a great honor since nowadays Sarah Eirik only said Mass on the High Holy Days and performed other priestly duties only for those few who had been coming to him for confession for many years. Simon Dar read aloud the document detailing Ulf's uh, betrothal and wedding gifts to his bride, and Erland gave an admirable speech to his kinsmen at the table. Ramborg Lavernstadter oversaw the serving of the food along with her sister, and she was also present to help the bride undress in the loft. And yet, it was not a truly joyous wedding. 
The bride bride was from an old and respected family there in the valley. Her kinsmen and neighbors could not possibly think she had won an equal match, since she had to make do with an outsider, and one who had served on another man's estate, even though it belonged to a kinsman. Neither Ulf's birth as the son of a wealthy knight and his maid, nor his kinship with Erlen Nicholson seemed to impress the sons of Herbrand as any great honor. Apparently, the bride herself was not content either, considering how she had behaved. Kristen sounded quite despondent when she spoke to Simon about this. He had come to Jorngard to take care of some matters several weeks after the wedding. Jartrude was urging her husband to move to his property at Scone. Weeping, she had said within Kristen's earshot that the worst thing she could imagine was that her child should be called the son of a servant. Ulf had not replied. The The newly married couple lived in the building known as the foreman's house because John... Einerson had lived there before Lavrens bought all of Lagerbrew and moved him out there. But his name displeased Jartrin, and she resented keeping her cows in the same shed as Kristen's. No doubt she was afraid that someone might think she was Kristen's serving woman. That was reasonable enough, thought Kristen. She would have a shed built for the foreman's house if Ulf didn't decide to take his wife and move to Skon. But perhaps that might be best after all. He was no longer so young that it would be easy for him to change the way he lived. Perhaps it would be less difficult for him in a new place. Simon thought she might be right about that. Ulf was greatly disliked in the region. He spoke scornfully about everything there in the valley. He was a capable and hard-working farmer, but he was unaccustomed to so many things in that part of the country. He took on more livestock in the fall than he could manage to feed through the winter. And when the cows languished or he ended up having to slaughter some of the starving beasts towards spring, he would grow angry and blame the fact that he was unused to the meager ways of the region, where people had to scrape off bark for fodder as early as St. Paul's Day. There was another consideration. In Trondelag, the the custom had gradually developed between the landowner and his tenants that he would demand as lease payment the goods that he needed most, hay, skins, flour, butter, or wool, even though certain goods or sums had been specified when the lease was settled. And it was the landowner or his envoys who recalculated the worth of one item in replacement for another, completely arbitrarily. But when Ulf made these demands upon Kristen's leaseholders around the countryside, people called them injurious and grievously unlawful, as they were, and the tenants complained to their mistress. She took Ulf to task as soon as she heard of the matter, but Simon knew that people blamed not only Ulf, but Kristen Lavernstetter as well. He had tried to explain, wherever talk of this arose, that Kristen hadn't known about Ulf's demands, and that they were based on customs of the man's own region. Simon feared this had done little good, although no one had said as much to his face. For this reason, he wasn't sure whether she should wish for Ulf to stay or leave. He didn't know how Kristen would handle things without her diligent and loyal helper. Erland was completely incapable of managing the farm work, and their sons were far too young. But Ulf had turned much of the countryside against her, and now there was this. He had seduced a young maiden from a wealthy and respected family in the valley. God only knew what Kristen was already struggling hard enough as the situation now stood. And they were in difficult straits, the people of Jorngard. Erland was no better liked than Ulf. If Erland's overseer and kinsman was arrogant and surly, the master himself, with his gentle and rather indolent manner, was even more irksome. Erland Nicholson probably had no idea that he was turning people against him. He seemed unaware of anything except that, rich or poor, he was the same man he had always been, and he wouldn't dream that anyone would call him arrogant for that very reason. He had plotted to incite a group of rebels against his king, even though he was Lord Magnus's king kinsman, vassal, and retainer. Then he himself had caused the downfall of the plan through his own foolish recklessness. 
but he evidently never thought that he might be branded a villain in anyone's eyes because of these matters. Simon couldn't see that Erland gave much thought to anything at all. It was hard to figure the man out. If one sat and conversed with Erland, he was far from stupid, thought Simon, but it was as if he could never take to heart the wise and splendid things he often said. It was impossible to remember that this man would soon be old. He could have had grandchildren long ago. Upon closer study, his face was lined and his hair sprinkled with gray, yet he and Nikolaus looked more like brothers than father and son. He was just as straight-backed and slender as when Simon had seen him for the first time. His voice was just as young and resonant. He moved among others with the same ease and confidence, with that slightly muted grace to his manner. With strangers, he had always been rather quiet and reserved, letting others seek him out instead of seeking their company himself, during times of both prosperity and adversity. That no one saw his company now was something that Erlen didn't seem to notice. In the whole circle of noblemen and landowners all along the valley, intermarried and closely related with each other as they were, resented the way this haughty Trondelog chieftain, who had been cast into their midst by misfortune, nevertheless considered himself too high-born and noble to seek their favor. But what had caused the most bad blood toward Erlen Nicholson was the fact that he had drawn the men of Sunbu into misfortune along with him. Gutterm and Borger Trondesen had been banished from Norway, and their shares of the great Jesling estates, as well as their half of the ancestral manor, had been seized by the crown. Ivar of Sunbu had to buy himself reconciliation with King Magnus. The king gave the confiscated properties, not without demanding compensation, it was said, to Sir Sigurd Erlinson Eldjarn, then the youngest of the sons of Trond, Ivar and Havard, who had not known of their brother's treasonous plans, sold their shares of the Vaj estates to Sir Sigurd, who was their cousin as well as the cousin of the daughters of Lavrens. Sigurd's mother, Gudrun Erverstadter, was the sister of Trond Jessling and Ragenfred of Jorngard. Ivar Jessling moved to Ringheim at Toten, a manor that he had acquired from his wife. His children would do well to live where they had inheritance and property rights from their mother's family. Havard still owned a great deal of property, but it was mostly in Valdres, and with his marriage, he had now come into possession of large estates in the Borg district. But the inhabitants of Vaj in northern Gudbrunstal thought it the greatest misfortune that the ancient lineage of landowners had lost Sunbu where they had lived and ruled the countryside for as far back as people could remember. For a short time, Sunbu had been in the hands of King Hakan, Hakanson's loyal retainer, Erland Eldjarn of Godland and Agder. The Jeslings had never been warm friends with King Sfer or his noblemen, and they had sided with Duke's school when he rallied the rebels against King Hakan. But Ivar the Younger had won Sunbu back in the exchange of properties with Erland Eldjarn, and had given his daughter Gudrun to him in marriage. Ivar's son, Trond, had not brought honor of any kind to his lineage, but his four sons were handsome, well-liked, and intrepid men, and people took it hard when they lost their ancestral estate. Before Ivar moved away from the valley, an accident occurred that made people even more sorrowful and indignant about the fate of the Jeslings. Gutterm was unmarried, but Borger's young wife had been left behind at Sunbu. Dagny Bjarnstadter had always been a little slow-witted, and she had openly shown that she loved her husband beyond all measure. Borgar Chansen was handsome, but had rather loose ways. The winter after he had fled from the land, Dagny fell through a hole in the ice of Vange Lake and drowned. It was called an accident, but people knew that grief and longing had robbed Dagny of the few wits she had left, and everyone felt deep pity for the simple, sweet, and pretty young woman who had met with such a terrible end.
That's when the rancor became widespread toward Erlen Nicholson, who had brought such mis misfortune upon the best people of the region. And then everybody began to gossip about how he had behaved when he was to marry the daughter of Lavrens Lagmanson. She too was a jesling after all, on her mother's side. The new master of Sunbu was not well liked, even though no one had anything specific to say against Sigurd himself. But he was from Egdi, and his father Erlend Eldjarn had quarreled with everyone in the part of the land with whom he had had any dealings. Christian and Ramborg had never met this cousin of theirs. Simon had known Sir Sigurd and Ramarik. He was the close kinsman of the Haftersons, and they, in turn, were close kinsmen of Gerd Dar's wife. But as complicated as matters now were, Simon avoided meeting Sir Sigurd as much as possible. He never had any desire to go to Sunbu anymore. The Transtons had been his dear friends, and Ramborg and the wives of Ivar and Borgar used to visit each other every year. Sir Sigurd Erlinson was all also much older than Simon Anderson. He was a man of almost 60. Things had become so tangled up because Erland and Kristen were now living at Jorngard that although the marriage of their overseer could not be called important news, Simon Dar thought it was enough to make the situation even more vexed. Usually he would not have troubled his young wife if he was having any difficulties or setbacks, but this time he couldn't help discussing these matters a bit with Ramborg. He was both surprised and pleased when he saw how sensibly she spoke about them and how admirably she tried to do all that she could to help. She went to see her sister at Jorengard much more often than she had before, and she gave up her sullen demeanor with Erland. On Christmas Day, when they met on the church hill after the mass, Ramborg kissed not only Kristen, but her brother-in-law as well. In the past, she had always fiercely mocked, mocked these foreign customs of his, the fact that he used to kiss his mother-in-law in greening in the lake. It suddenly occurred to Simon when he saw Ramborg put her arms around Erland's neck that he might do the same with his wife's sister. But then he realized that he couldn't do it after all. He had never been in the habit of kissing the wives of his kinsmen. His mother and sisters had laughed at him when he suggested trying it when he came home after he had been at court and service as a page. For the Christmas banquet at Formo, Ramborg seated Ulf Halderson's young wife in a place of honor, showing both of them such respect as was seemly toward a new married couple, and she went to Jorngard to be with Jartrude when she gave birth. That took place a month after Christmas, two months too soon, and the boy was tillborn. Then Jartrude fl flew into a fury. If she had known that things might go this way, she would never have married Ulf, but now it was done and could not be helped. What Ulf Halderson thought about the matter, no one knew. He didn't say a word. During the week before mid-Lent, Erlen Nicholson and Simon Anderson rode south together to, to Vom. Several years before Laverns died, he and a few other farmers had purchased a small estate in the village there. Now the original owners of the manor wanted to buy it back, but it was rather unclear how things had been handled in the past as far as offering the land to the heirs, or whether the kinsmen of the sellers had claimed their rights in lawful fashion. When Lavrens's estate had been settled after, the, their, after his death, his share in this farm had been excluded, along with several other small properties that might involve legal proceedings over proof of ownership. The two sisters then divided up the, the income from them. That was why both of Laverne's sons-in-laws were now appearing on behalf of their wives. A good number of people had gathered, and because the tenant's wife and children lay sick in bed in the main house, the men had to make do with meeting in an old outbuilding on the farm. It was drafty and in terrible disrepair. Everyone kept on his fur cape. 
Each man placed his weapons within reach and kept his sword on his belt. No one had a desire to stay any longer than necessary, but they would at least have a bite to eat before they parted. And so at the time of mid-afternoon prayers, when the discussion was over, the men took out their bags of provisions and sat down to eat, with the packets lying next to them on the benches or in front of them on the floor. There was no table in the building. The parish priest of Vam had sent his son, Holmgar Moisesen, in his stead. He was a devious and trustworthy young man whom few people liked. But his father was greatly admired, and his mother had belonged to a respected family. Holmgar was a tall and strong fellow, hot-blooded and quick to turn on people, so no one wished to quarrel with the priest's son. There were also many who thought him an able and witty speaker. Simon hardly knew him and didn't like his looks. He had a long, narrow face with pale freckles and a thin upper lip, which made his big yellow front teeth gleam like a rat's. But Sarah Moises had been Lavrens's good friend, and for a time the son had been raised at Jorengard, partly as a servant and partly as a foster son, until his father had acknowledged him as his own. For this reason, Simon was always friendly when he met Holmgar Moisesen. Now Holmgar had rolled a stump over to the hearth and was sitting there, sticking slices of meat, roasted thrushed with pieces of bacon, on his dagger and heating them in the fire. He had been ill and had been granted fourteen days' indulgence. He told the others who were chewing on bread and frozen fish as the fragrant smell of Holmgar's meat rose up to their noses. Simon was in a bad humor, not truly angry, but slightly dejected and embarrassed. The whole property matter was difficult to sort out, and the documents he had received from his father-in-law were very unclear. And yet, when he left home, he thought that he understood them. He had compared them with other documents. But now, when he heard the statements of the witnesses and saw the other evidence that was put forth, he realized that his view of the matter wouldn't hold up. But none of the other men had any better grasp of it, particularly not the sheriff's envoy, who was also present. It was suggested that the case would have to be brought up before a ting. Then Erlen suddenly spoke and asked to see the documents. Up to that moment, he had sat and listened, almost as if he had no interest in the matter. Now he seemed to wake up. He carefully read through all the documents, a few of them several times. Then he explained the situation, clearly and briefly. Such and such were the provisions of the law books, and in such a way they could be interpreted. The vague and clumsy phrases in the documents had to mean either this or that. If the case were brought before a ting, it would be decided in either this or that manner. Then he proposed a solution with which the original owners might be satisfied, but which was not entirely to the detriment of the present owners. Erlen stood up as he spoke, with his left hand resting lightly on the hilt of his sword, his right hand carelessly holding the stack of documents. He acted as if he were the one in charge of the meeting, although Simon could see that he wasn't aware of this himself. He was so used to standing up and speaking in this manner when he used to hold Sheriff Tings in his county. When he turned to one of the others to ask if something was so, and if... and if the man understood what he was explaining, he spoke as if he were interrogating a witness, not without courtesy, and yet as if it were his place to ask the questions, and the other man's place to answer. When he was done speaking, he handed the documents to the envoy as if the man could be his servant, and sat down. While the others discussed the matter, and Simon also stated his opinion, Aylin listened, but in such a fashion as if he had no stake in the case. His replies were curt, clear, and instructive if anyone happened to address him. But all the while, he scraped his fingernail on some grease spots that had appeared on his tunic, straightened his belt, picked up his gloves, and seemed to be waiting rather impatiently for the conversation to come to an end. The others agreed to the arrangement that Erland had proposed, and it was one that Simon could be tolerably satisfied with. 
he would have been unlikely to win anything more from a court case. But he had fallen into a bad mood. He knew full well that it was child of, childish of him to be crossed because his brother-in-law had understood the matter while he had not. It was reasonable that Erland should be better able to interpret the word of law and decipher confusing documents, since for years it had been his role to explain the statutes to people and settle disputes. But it had come upon Simon quite unexpectedly. The night before at Jorngard, when he talked to Erland and Kristen about the meeting, Erland hadn't mentioned any opinion. He seemed to listen with only half an ear. Yes, it was clear that Erland would be better versed in the law than ordinary farmers, but it was as if the law were no concern of his, as he sat there and counseled the others with friendly indifference. Simon had a vague feeling that in some way, Erland had never respected the law as a guide in his own life. It was also strange that he could stand up in that manner, completely untroubled. He had to be aware that this made the others think about who and what he had been and what his situation now was. Simon could feel the others thinking about this. Some probably resented this man, who never seemed to care what other people thought of him. But no one said anything. When the blue, frozen clerk, who had come with the invoice, sat down and put the writing board on his lap, he addressed all his questions to Erland, and Erland spelled things out for him as he sat holding a few pieces of straw, which he had picked up from the floor, twining them around his long tan fingers and weaving them into a ring. When the clerk was finished, he handed the calfskin to Erland, who tossed the straw ring into the hearth, took the letter, and read it half aloud. To all men who see or hear, hear this document, greetings from God and from Simon Anderson of Formo, Erland Nicholson of Jorngard, Vidar Steinson of Klofestad, Ingemund and Torald Bjorgensen, Bjorn Ingemundsen of Lundar, Alf Einersen, Holmgeier Moisesen, Ellipses. Do you have the wax ready? he asked the clerk, who was blowing on his frozen fingers. Let it be known that in the year of our Lord, 1,338 winters, on the Friday before Midlit Sunday, we met at Granheim in the parish of Fom. We can take the chest that's standing in the alcove, alcove, alcove off and use it as a table. Erland turned to the envoy as he gave the document back to the scribe. Simon remembered how Erland had been when he was in the company of his peers up north. Easy and confident enough, he wasn't lacking in that regard. Impetus and rash in his speech, but always with something slightly ingratiating about his manner. He was not in the least indifferent to what others thought of him if he considered them his peers or kinsmen. On the contrary, he had doubtless put great effort into winning their approval. With an oddly fierce sense of bitterness, Simon suddenly felt allied with these farmers from here in the valley, men whom Erland respected so little that he didn't even wonder what they might think of him. He had done it for Erland's sake. For his sake, Simon had parted with the circles of the gentry and well-to-do. It was all very well to be the rich farmer of Formo, but he couldn't forget that he had turned his back on his peers, kinsmen, and the friends of his youth. Because he had assumed the role of a supplicant among them, he no longer had the strength to meet them, hardly had the strength to think of it at all. For this brother-in-law of his, he had as good as denied his king and departed from the ranks of royal retainers. He had revealed to Erland something that he found more bitter than death to recall whenever it entered his thoughts. And yet, Erland behaved toward him as if he had understood nothing and remembered nothing. It didn't seem to trouble the fellow at all that he had wreaked havoc with another man's life. At that moment, Erland said to him, We should see about leaving, Simon, if we want to make it back home tonight. I'll go out and see to the horses. Simon looked up, feeling a strange ill will at the sight of the other man's tall, handsome figure. Under the hood of his cape, Erland wore a small black silk cap that fit snugly to his head and was tied under his chin. 
His lean, dark face with the big, pale blue eyes, sunk deep in the shadow of his brow, looked even younger and more refined under that cap. "'And pack up my bag in the meantime,' he said from the door as he went out. The other man had continued to talk about the case. "'It was quite peculiar,' said one of them, "'that Laverns hadn't been able to arrange things better. "'The man usually knew what he was doing. "'He was the most experienced of farmers in all matters "'regarding the purchase and sale of land.' "'It's probably my father who is to blame,' said Holmgar, the priest's son. "'He said as much this morning. "'If he had listened to Laverns back then, "'everything would have been plain and clear. "'But you know how Laverns was. "'Toward priests he was always as, as amenable and submissive as a lamb.' "'Even so, Laverns of Jorngard had always guarded his own welfare,' said someone else. "'Yes, and no doubt he thought he was doing so "'when he followed the priest's advice,' said Holmgar, laughing." That can be the wise thing to do, even with earthly matters, as long as you're not eyeing the same patch that the church has set its sights on. Laverns had been a strangely pious man, thought Vidar. He had never spared either property or livestock with regard to the church or the poor. No, said Holmgar thoughtfully. Well, if I'd been such a rich man, I too might have had a mind to pay out sums for the peace of my soul. But I wouldn't have given away my goods with both hands the way he did and then walk around with red eyes and white cheeks every time I'd been, been to see the priest to confess my sins. And Laverns went to confession every month. Tears of remorse are the fair gifts of grace from the Holy Spirit, Holmgard, said old Ingemann Bjornsson. Blessed is he who can weep for his sins here in this world. All the easier it will be for him to enter the other. Then Laverns must have been in heaven long ago, said Holmgard, considering the way he fasted and disciplined his flesh. I've heard that on Good Friday he would lock himself in the loft above the storeroom and lash himself with a whip. Hold your tongue, said Simon Anderson, trembling with bitterness. His face was blood red. Whether Holmgar's remark was true or not, he didn't know. But when he was cleaning up his father-in-law's belongings, he had found a small oblong wooden box in the bottom of his book chest, and inside lay a silk whip that the cloisters called a flagellum. The braided strips of leather bore dark spots, which might have been blood. Simon had burned it with a feeling of sad reverence. He realized that he had come upon something in the other man's life that Laverns had never wanted a living soul to see. I don't think he would talk about such things to his servants in any case, said Simon, when he trusted himself to speak. No, it's just something that people have made up, replied Holmgar. Surely he didn't have such sins to repent that he would need to. The man gave a little sneer. If I had lived as blameless and Christian a life as Laverns Bjorgelsen, and been married to a mournful woman like Ragenfred Eversdetter, I think I would have wept for the sins that I hadn't committed. Simon leaped up and struck Holmgar in the mouth, so the man tumbled back toward the hearth. His dagger fell to the floor, and in the next instant, he grabbed it and tried to stab the other man. Simon shielded himself with his arm, holding his cape as he seized Holmgar's wrist with his other hand and tried to wrest the dagger away. In the meantime, the priest's son aimed a number of blows at his face. Simon then gripped him by both arms, but the young man sank his teeth into Simon's hand. "'You dare to bite me, you dog!' Simon let go, took several steps back, and pulled his sword from his sheath. He fell upon Holmgar so that his young body arched back, with a few inches of steel buried in his chest. A moment later, Holmgar's body slipped from the sword point and fell heavily, heavily, halfway in the hearth fire." Simon flung his sword away and was about to lift Holmgar out of the blaze when he saw Vitter's axe raised to strike above the head. He ducked and lunged to the side, seized hold of his sword again, and just managed to fend off the blade of the envoy, Alf Einerson. He whirled around and again he had to shield himself from Vitter's axe. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw behind 
that the Bjorgensons and Bjorn of Lund were aiming spears at him from the other side of the hearth. He then drove Alf in front of him over to the opposite wall, but sensed that Vader was coming from, for him from behind. Vidar had dragged, dragged Holmgar out of the fire. They were cousins, those two. And the louts from Lund were approaching from around the hearth. He stood exposed on all sides, and in the midst of it all, even though he had more than enough to do to save his life, he felt a vague, unhappy sense of surprise that the men were all against him. At the next moment, Erlen's sword flashed between the Lund men and Simon. Torald reeled aside and fell against the wall. Quick as lightning, Erlen shifted his sword to his left hand and struck Alf's weapon away so that it slid with a clatter across the floor, while with his right hand he grabbed the shaft of Bjorn's spear and pressed it downward. Get outside, he told Simon, breathing hard and shielding his brother-in-law from Vardar. Simon ground his teeth together and raced across the room toward Bjorn and Engmund. Erlen was at his side, screaming over the tumult and clang of swords. Get outside! Do you hear me, you fool? Head for the door. We have to get out. When Simon realized that Erlen meant for both of them to go out, he began moving backwards, still fighting, toward the door. They ran through the entryway, and then they were out in the courtyard, Simon a few steps farther away from the building, and Erlen right in front of the door with his sword half raised and his face turned toward those who were swarming after them. For a moment, Simon felt blinded. The winter day was so dazzling, bright, and clear. Under the blue sky, the mountains arched white gold in the last rays of the sun. The forest was weighted down with snow and frost. The expansive fields glittered and gleamed like gemstones. He heard Erlen say, It will not make amends for the misfortune if more deaths occur. We should use our wits, good sirs, so there is no more bloodshed. Things are bad enough as they are, with my brother-in-law having slain a man. Simon stepped to Erlen's side. You killed my cousin without cause, Simon Anderson, said Vitter of Clofestad, who was standing in front of the others in the doorway. It was not entirely without cause that he fell, but you know, Vidar, that I won't refuse to pay the penance for this misfortune I've brought upon you. All of you know where you can find me at home. Erlen talked a little more to the farmers. Alf, how did it happen? He went indoors with the other men. Simon stayed where he was, feeling strangely numb. Erlen came back after a moment. Let's go now, he said as he headed from the stable. Is he dead? asked Simon. Yes, and Alf and Torald and Vidar all have wounds, but none is serious. Holmgarn's hair was singed off the back of his head. Erlen had spoken in a somber voice, but now he abruptly burst out laughing. Now, it certainly smells like a damn roasted thrush in there. You'd better believe me. How the devil could all of you get into such a quarrel in such a short time? He asked in astonishment. A half-grown boy was holding their horses. Neither of the men had brought his own servant along on this journey. Both were still carrying their swords. Erlen picked up a handful of hay and wiped the blood from his. Simon did the same. When he had rubbed off the worst of it, he, struck, he stuck his sword back in its sheath. Aaron cleaned his sword very thoroughly, and then polished it with the hem of his cape. Then he made several playful little thrusts into the air and smiled fleetingly, as if at a memory. He tossed the sword high up, caught it by the hilt, and stuck it back in its sheath. Your wounds. We should go up to the house, and I'll bandage them for you. Simon said they were nothing. But you are bleeding too, Erland. It's nothing dangerous, and my skin heals fast. I've noticed that heavyset people always take longer to heal, and with this cold, and we have such a long way to ride. Erlen got some solvent cloths from the tenant farmer and carefully tended to the other man's wounds. Simon had two flesh wounds right next to each other on the left side of his chest. They bled a great deal at first, but they weren't serious. Erlen had been slashed on the thigh by Bjorn's spear. That would make it painful to ride, said Simon, but his brother-in-law laughed. It had barely made a scratch through his leather hose. He dabbed at it a bit and then wrapped it tightly against the frost.
It was bitterly cold. Before they reached the bottom of the hill on which the farm stood, their horses were covered with rime and the fur trim on the men's hoods had turned white. Burr, Erlen shivered. If only we were home. We'll have to ride over to the manor down here and report the slang. Is that necessary? asked Simon. I spoke to Vidar and the others after all. It would be better if you did so, said Erland. You should report the news yourself. Don't let them have anything to hold against you. The sun had slipped behind the ridge now. The evening was a pale grayish blue, but still light. They rode along a creek beneath the branches of birch trees that were even more shaggy with frost than the rest of the forest. There was a stink of raw, icy fog in the air, which could make a man's breath stick in his throat. Erlen grumbled impatiently about the long period of cold they had had and about the chill ride that lay before them. "'You're not getting frostbite on your face, are you, brother-in-law?' He peered anxiously under Simon's head. Simon rubbed his hand over his face. It wasn't frostbitten, but he had grown quite pale as he rode. It didn't suit him, because his large, portly face was weather-beaten and ruddy, and the paleness appeared in gray blotches, which made his complexion look unclean. "'Have you ever seen a man spreading manure with his sword the way Alf did?' asked Erlen. He burst out laughing at the memory and leaned forward in his saddle to imitate the gesture. "'What a splendid envoy he is. You should have seen Ulf playing with his sword, Simon. Jesus, Maria.' "'Playing. Well, now he'd seen Erlen Nicholson playing at that game. Over and over again he saw himself and the other men tumbling around the hearth, the way farmers chop wood or toss hay, and Erlen's slender, lightning-swift figure among them.' his gaze alert and his wrist steady as he danced with them, quick-witted and an expert swordsman. More than twenty years ago, he himself had been considered one of the foremost swordsmen among the youth of the royal retainers when they practiced out in the green, but since then he hadn't had much opportunity to use his knightly skills. And here he was now, riding along and feeling sick at heart because he had killed a man. He kept seeing Holmgar's body as it fell from his sword and sank into the fire. He heard the man's abrupt strangled death cry in his ears and saw, again and again, images of the brief furious battle that followed. He felt dejected, pained, and confused. They had turned on him suddenly, all those men with whom he had sat and felt a sense of belonging, and then Erlen had come to his aid. He had never thought himself a coward. He had hunted down six bears during the years he had lived at Formo, and twice he had put his life at risk in the most reckless manner, with only the thin trunk of a pine tree between him and a raging wounded female, with no other weapon that than his spear point on a shaft a scant hand's breadth long. The tenses of the game had not disturbed his steadiness of thought, action, or instinct. But now, in that outbuilding, he didn't know if he had been afraid, but he certainly had been confused, unable to think clearly. When he was back home after the bear hunt, with his clothes thrown on haphazardly, with his arm in a sling, feverish, his shoulders stiff and torn, he had merely felt an overwhelming joy. Things might have gone worse, how much worse he didn't dwell on, but now he kept thinking about it, ceaselessly, how everything might have ended if Erland hadn't come to his aid just in time. He hadn't been afraid, but he had such a peculiar feeling. It was the expressions on the faces of the other men and Holmgar's dying body, he had never killed a man before, except for the Swedish horsemen he had felled. It was during the year when King Hakon led an incursion into Sweden to avenge the murder of the dukes. Simon had been sent out on a scouting mission. He had taken along three men, and he was to be their chieftain. How bold and cocky he was. Simon remembered that his sword had gotten stuck in the steel helmet of the horsemen so that he had to pry and wriggle it loose. There was a nick in the blade when he looked at it the next morning. He had always thought about that incident with pride, and there had been eight Swedes. He had gotten a taste of war at any rate, and that wasn't the lot of everyone who joined the king's men that year. 
When daylight came, he saw that blood and brains had splattered over his coat of mail. He tried to look modest and not boastful as he washed it off. But it did no good to think about that poor devil of a horseman now. No, that was not the same thing. He couldn't get rid of a terrible feeling of remorse about Holmgeier Moisesen. There was also the fact that he owed Erland his life. He didn't yet know what import this would have, but he felt as if everything would be different now, now that he and Erland were even. In that way, they were even, at least. The brothers-in-law had been riding in near silence. Once Erland said, it was foolish of you, Simon, not to think of getting our right from the start. Why is that? asked Simon rather brusquely. Because you were outside? No, there was the hint of a smile in Erland's voice. Well, because of that, too. I hadn't thought about that. But through that narrow door, they couldn't follow you more than one at a time. And it's always astounding how quickly people regain their senses when they come out under the open sky. It seems to me a miracle that there weren't any more deaths. A few times, Erland inquired about his brother-in-law's wounds. Simon said he hardly noticed them, even though they were throbbing terribly. They reached Formo late that evening, and Erland went outside with his brother-in-law. He had advised Simon to send the sheriff a report of the incident the very next day in order to arrange for a letter of reprieve as soon as possible. Erland would gladly compose the letter for Simon so that night, since the wounds on his chest would no doubt hamper his writing hand, and tomorrow you must keep to, must keep to your bed. You may have a little wound fever. I am pausing to read you a footnote about the letter. of reprieve. In the footnote it says, permission granted by the king for a man to remain in Norway even though he either had been sentenced to banishment or had committed acts punishable by banishment. Now back to the story. Ramborg and Arngard were waiting up for them. Because of the cold, they had settled on the bench on the warm side of the hearth, tucking their legs underneath them. A board game lay between them and they looked like a couple of children. Simon had barely uttered a few words about what had happened before his young wife flew to his side and threw her arms around his neck. She pulled his face down to hers and pressed her cheeks against his, and she crushed Erland's hand so tightly that he laughingly said he had never thought Rainbow could have such strong fingers. She begged her husband to spend the night in the main house so that she could keep watch over him. She implored him, almost in tears, until Erland offered to stay and sleep with Simon if she would send a man north to Jorengard to take word. It was too late for him to ride home anyway, and a shame for Kristen to sit up so late in this cold. She waits up for me, too. You're both good wives, you daughters of Lavrens. While the men ate and drank, Ramborg sat close to her husband. Simon patted her arm in hand. He was both a little embarrassed and greatly touched that she showed so much concern and love for him. Simon was sleeping in the Simon house during Lent, and when the man... When the men went over there, Ramborg went with them and put a large kettle of honey ale to warm near the hearthstone. The Simon house was an ancient little hearth building, warm and snug. The timbers were so roughly hewn that there were only four beams to each wall. Right now it was cold, but Simon threw a great armful of resinous pine over the fire and chased his dog up into the bed. The animal could lie there and warm it up for them. They pulled the log chair and the high-backed bench all the way up to the hearth and made themselves comfortable, for they were frozen to the bone after their ride and the meal in the main house had only partially thawed them. Erland wrote the letter for Simon. Then they proceeded to undress. Simon's wound began to bleed again when he moved his arms too much, so his brother-in-law helped him pull the outer tunic over his head and take off his boots. Erland limped a bit from his wounded leg. It was stiff and tender after the ride, he said, but it was nothing. Then they sat down over the fire again, half-dressed. Near the fire again, half-dressed. 
The room had grown pleasantly warm, and there was still plenty of ale in the kettle. I can see they are taking this much too hard, Aelin said once. They had been dozing and staring into the fire. He was no great loss to the world, that Holmgar. That's not what Sarah Mo Moises will think, said Simon quietly. He's an old man and a good priest. Aelin nodded somberly. It's a bad thing to have made enemies with such a man, especially since he lives so near, and you know that I often have business in that parish. Yes, well, this kind of thing can happen so easily to any of us. They'll probably sentence you to a fine of ten or twelve marks of gold, and you know that Bishop Halvard is a stern master when he has to hear the confession of an assailant, and the boy's father is one of his priests. But you'll get through whatever is required. Simon did not reply. Erlen continued. No doubt I'll have to pay fines for the injuries. He smiled to himself, and I own no other piece of Norwegian land than the farm at Dover. How big of a farm is Hagen? asked Simon. I don't remember exactly. It says in the deed. But the people who work the land harvest only a small amount of hay. No one wants to live there. I've heard that the buildings are in great disrepair. You know what people say, that the dead spirits of my aunt and Herr Bjorn haunt the place. But I know that I will win thanks for my wife for what I did today. Kristen is fond of you, Simon, as if you were her own brother. Simon's smile was almost imperceptible as he sat there in the shadows. He had pushed the log chair back a bit and had put his hand up to shield his eyes from the heat of the flames. But Erland was as happy as a cat in the heat. He sat close to the hearth, leaning against a corner of the bench, with one arm resting along its back, and his wounded leg propped up on the opposite side. Yes, she had such charming words to say about it one day this past fall, said Simon after a moment. There was an almost mocking ring to his voice. When our son was ill, she showed that she was a loyal sister, he said somberly, but then that slightly jesting tone was back. Well, Erland, we have kept faith with each other the way we swore to do when we gave our hands to Laverns and vowed to stand by each other as brothers. Yes, said Erland, unsuspecting. I'm glad for what I did today, too, Simon, my brother-in-law. They both fell silent for a while. Then Erland hesitantly stretched out his hand to the other man. Simon took it. They clasped each other's fingers tightly, then let go and huddled back in their seats, a little embarrassed. Finally, Erland broke the silence. For a long time, he had been sitting with his chin in his hand, staring into the hearth, where only a tiny flame now flickered, flaring up, dancing a bit, and playing over the charred pieces of wood, which broke apart and collapsed with brittle little sighs. Soon there would be only black coals and glowing embers left of the fire. Erland said quite so softly, You have treated me so magnanimously, Simon Dar, that I think few men are your equal. I... I haven't forgotten. Silence. You don't know, Erland. Only God in heaven knows everything that resides in a man's mind, whispered Simon, frightened and distraught. That's true, said Erland, in the same quiet and somber tone of voice. We all need him to judge us, with mercy. But a man must judge a man by what he does. And I, I, may God re reward you, brother-in-law. Then they sat in dead silence, not daring to move for fear of being shamed. Suddenly, Erland left his let his hand fall to his knee. A fiery blue ray of light flashed from the stone on the ring he wore on his right index finger. Simon knew that Kristen had given it to Erland when he was released from the prison tower. But you must remember, Simon, he said in a low voice, the old saying, many a man has given what was intended for another, but no one has given another man's fate. Simon raised his head sharply. Slowly, his face flushed blood red. The veins at his temples stood out like dark, twisted cords. Aelin glanced at him for a moment, but quickly withdrew his eyes. Then he, too, turned crimson. A strangely delicate and girlish blush spread over his tanned skin. He sat motionless, embarrassed and confused, with his little childish mouth open. 
Simon stood up abruptly and went over to the bed. You'll want to take the outside edge, I presume. He tried to speak calmly and with nonchalance, but his voice quavered. No, I'll let you decide, said Erland Emily. He got to his feet. The fire, he asked, flustered. Should I cover the ashes? He began raking the hearth. Finish that and then come to bed, said Simon in the same tone. His heart was pounding so hard that he could barely talk. In the dark, Erland, soundless as a shadow, slipped under the covers on the outer edge of the bed and lay down, as quiet as a forest creature. Simon thought he would suffocate from having the other man in his bed. Chapter 6 Every year during Easter week, Simon Anderson held an ale feast for the people of the village. They came to Formo on the third day after Mass and stayed until Thursday. Kristen had never particularly enjoyed these banquets with their bantering and pleasantry. Both Simon and Ramborg seemed to think that the more commotion and noise there was, the better. Simon always invited his guests to bring along their children, their servants, and the children of their servants, as many as could be spared from home. On the first day, everything proceeded in a quiet and orderly manner. Only the gentry and the elders would converse, while the youth listened and ate and drank, and the little children kept mostly to a different building. But on the second day, from early in the morning on, the host would urge the lively young people and the children to drink and make merry, and before long the teasing would grow so wild and unrestrained that the women and maidens would slip away to the corners and stand there in clusters, giggling and ready to flee. But many of the more high-standing wives would seek out Ramborg's women's house, which was already occupied by the mothers who had rescued the youngest children from the tumult of the main building. One game that was a favorite among the men was pretending to hold a ting. They would read summons documents, present grievances, proclaim new laws, and modify old ones. But they always twisted the words around and said them backwards. Aden Tor Torbergson could recite King Hakon's letter to the merchants of Bjorgvin. What they could charge for men's houses and for leather soles on women's shoes about the men who made swords and banged small sh shields. But he would mix up the words until they were all jumbled in sheer babble. This game always ended with the men not having any idea what they were saying. Kristen remembered from her childhood that her father would never allow the jesting to turn to ridicule of anything related to the church or divine services. But otherwise, Lavins thought it great fun when he and his guests would compete by jumping up on the tables and benches while they merrily shouted all manner of coarse and unseemly nonsense. Simon was usually most fond of games in which a man was blindfolded and had to search through the ashes for a knife, or two people had to bob for pieces of gingerbread and a big bowl of ale. The other guests would try to make them laugh, and the ale would spray all around. Or they were supposed to use their teeth to dig a ring out of a flower bin. The hall would soon take on the look of a pigsty. But this year they had such surprisingly glorious spring weather for Easter. On Wednesday by early morning it was already sunny and warm, and right after breakfast everyone went out to the courtyard. Instead of making a noisy ruckus, the young people played with balls, or shot at targets, or had tugs of war with a rope. Later they played the stag game or the woodpile dance, and afterward they persuaded Germund of Kruk to sing and play his harp. Soon everyone, both young and old, had joined the dance. Snow still covered the fields, but the alder trees were brown with buds, and the sun shone warm and lovely on all the bar bare slopes. When the guests came outside after supper, there were birds singing everywhere. Then they made a bonfire in the field beyond the smithy, and they sang and danced until late into the night. The next morning, everyone stayed in bed a long time and left the banquet manor much later than usual. The guests from Drawingard were normally the last to depart, but this time Simon persuaded Erlen and Kristen to stay until the following day. Those from Kruk were to stay at Formo until the end of the week. 
Simon had accompanied the last of his guests up to the main road. The evening sun was shining so beautifully on his estate, spread out, spread out over the hillside. He was warm and in high spirits from the drinking and noise of the feast. He walked back between the fences, homeward to the calm and pleasant goodwill that prevails when a small circle of close kin remains after a great banquet. He felt so light of heart and happier than he had been for a long time. Down in the field near the smithy, they had lit another bonfire. Erland's sons, Sigurd's older children, Don, John Doc's sons, and his own daughters. Simon leaned over the fence for a moment to watch. Ulfhild's scarlet feast day gown gleamed and rippled in the sun. She ran back and forth, dragging branches over to the fire, and suddenly she was stretched out full length on the ground. Her father shouted merrily, but the children didn't hear him. In the courtyard, two serving maids were tending to the smallest of the children. They were sitting, sitting against the wall of the women's house, basking in the sun. Above their heads, the evening light gleamed like molten gold on the small glass window pane. Simon picked up little Inga, German's daughter, tossed her high in the air, and then held her in his arms. Can you sing for your uncle today, pretty Inga? Then her brother and Andres both fell upon Simon, wanting to be tossed up in the air, too. Whistling, he climbed the stairs to the great hall in the loft. The sun was shining into the room so splendidly they had let the door stand open. A wondrous calm reigned over everyone. At the end of the table, Erland and Germund were bent over the harp, on which they were putting new strings. They had the mead horn standing near them on the table. Sigrid was in bed, nursing her youngest son. Kristen and Ramborg were sitting with her, and a silver mug stood on a footstool between the sisters. Simon filled his own gilded goblet to the brim with wine, went over to the bed, and drank a toast to Sigrid. I see that all have quenched their thirst except you, my sister. Laughing, she propped herself up on her elbow and accepted the goblet. The infant began howling crossly at being disturbed. Simon sat down on the bench, still whistling softly, and listened with half an ear to what the others were saying. Sigrid and Kristen were talking about their children. Ramborg was silent, fiddling with a windmill that belonged to Andres. The men at the table were strumming the harp, trying it out. Garman picked out a melody on the harp and sang along. They both had such charming voices. After a while, Simon went out to the gallery, leaned against the carved post, and gazed out. From the cow shed came the eternally hungry lowing. If this weather held on for a time, perhaps the spring shortages wouldn't last as long this year. Kristen was approaching. He didn't have to turn around. He recognized her light step. She stepped forward and stood at his side in the evening sun. So fair and graceful, she had never seemed to him more beautiful, and all of a sudden he felt as if he had somehow been lifted up and were swimming in the light. He let out a long breath. Suddenly he thought, it was simply good to be alive. A rich and golden bliss washed over him. She was his own sweet love. All the troubled and bitter thoughts he had had seemed nothing more than half-forgotten foolishness. My poor love, if only I could comfort you. If only you could be happy again. I would gladly give up my life if it would help you. Oh yes, he could see that her lovely face looked older and more careworn. She had an abundance of fine little wrinkles under her eyes, and her skin had lost its delicate hue. It had become coarser and tan from the sun, but she was pale under the tan. And yet to him she would surely always be just as beautiful. Her big gray eyes, her fine, calm mouth, her round little chin, and her steady, subdued demeanor were the fairest he knew on earth. It was a pleasure to see her once again dressed in a manner befitting a high-born woman. The thin little silk wimple covered only half of her golden-brown tresses. Her braids had been pinned up so they peeked out in front of her ears. 
There were streaks of gray in her hair now, but that didn't matter. And she was wearing a magnificent blue surcoat made of velvet and trimmed with matte and fur. The bodice was cut so low and the sleeve hole so deep that, sh- that the garment clung to her breast and shoulders like the narrow straps of a bridle. It looked so lovely. Underneath, there was a glimpse of something sand yellow, a gown that fit snugly to her body, all the way up to her throat and down to her wrists. It was held closed with dozens of tiny gilded buttons, which touched him so deeply. God forgive him. All those little golden buttons gave him as much joy as the sight of a flock of angels. He stood there and felt the strong, steady beat of his own heart. Something had fallen away from him. Yes, like chains. Vile, hateful dreams. They were just phantoms of the night. Now he could see the love he felt for her in the light of day, in full sunlight. You're looking at me so strangely, Simon. Why are you smiling like that? The man gave a quiet, merry laugh, but did not reply. Before them st- 